Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my manner. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to the, this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is God's word. Father God, just use my mouth how you would prefer to use it and help me to speak into the lives of everyone here tonight. Uh, in your name, amen. Um, this has been an interesting time, like I said. It's, it's, it's been, I would say, less, um, less easy than it usually is. I've, and I don't know why, but just how it goes. And I don't know, it's, it's been fun, though. I want to start off, actually I titled this uh, sermon, Exiles to the Exiled. And I did that for very specific reasons because when I was learning and researching and doing all the diving and digging into what it meant to be an exile, I found out some paradoxical notions about exile in the Bible and all that, and it really threw me for a loop. And so I had to shift things around a lot in order to get to where I am now, and I hope that it's not too much in some spaces, and if it is, I can always uh, repeat things later on if, uh, if you get lost. Um, if I were to ask you, why does Mission Church exist, what would that answer be? And you can tell me. Do you have any answers? Why does Mission Church exist? No answers? Anything? You got something? Go ahead. I'm ready. That's a good one, to love God. I like that. I like that. Um, what I would think I would say is that we want to preach the gospel to a very, very, very lost world and make disciples of people outside of this church and inside the church, frankly. Basically, what we want to see is we want to see people come to know Jesus. And I think that's basically why we exist. That's basically why the church exists, really, um, and that's our main goal. I mean, there's a lot more to the existence of the church. It's a much bigger proposition than, than that. But I mean, I think that's a big portion of it because we are called to go and make disciples of all nations. But we can't do that if we don't realize what it looks like to humbly follow Jesus in a world that doesn't necessarily like him. Um, in his writings, Peter refers to believers as exiles, 
And he refers to us as believers that way because he wants us to understand who we are in relation to the culture and the world in the time in which we live and in the time that um, he lived. But you're going to have to allow me to digress just a little bit. I know that Steven Spielberg does not like his own movie Hook, but I love it. Um, I was born in the late 80s, and it came out when I was like six or seven, so it was like perfect time to just be a kid and like this movie. A lot of people don't like it now because apparently it hasn't aged very well, but I love it because, I don't know, John Williams wrote the score, and it's a Steven Spielberg movie, and it's very good. I don't know. If you've never seen the movie or don't know the premise of the movie, as I read you this premise, you're going to realize it does sound a little bit strange, because it is. Um, Peter Pan grew up. He now lives in California, and he doesn't know that he's Peter Pan. He's actually Peter Banning. Um, And he has a grandma, Wendy. Man, that's a really big coincidence. Who's actually pretty old, and she lives in the United Kingdom. Also another coincidence, strange. So they go to visit Grandma Wendy in the United Kingdom, and they fly over there. Oh, yeah, Peter does not like to fly. That's, that's funny. Um, but Captain Hook had other plans for Peter and his family. He kidnaps his kids, and Peter must discover who he is in order to save those kids. I say all of that to say that there is a moment in the beginning of that movie, actually beginning middle, where Peter and Wendy are talking about Peter, and she's reading the book of, you know, fairy tales, whatever, about who Peter is. And she looks at him and she says, boy, don't you know who you are? And he does this and, and doesn't really know who he is. He has no idea who he is. He's totally forgotten. And why has he forgotten? Because he's so enraptured in his business deals and his company and everything He's answering the cell phone every day. He's not paying attention. He's sending people out to go film his kids as they play softball or baseball or whatever. He's not involved in their lives. He's missing everything because he's just so enraptured in all of these other things. And he's forgotten because he's wrapped up in the world of business and whatnot. Kind of classic early 90s, late 80s tale. Dad, who's not there. Plus, he can't fly, he can't fight, and he can't crow. And... I say all of this because I feel like this is where we are as Christians in America sometimes. We don't know who we are. We've kind of forgotten a little bit. And I feel like sometimes there needs to be this reminder. Like, don't you know that you've been called sons and daughters of God? Don't you know that you've been made new by the blood of Jesus? And don't you know that Jesus conquered death when he rose from the dead? Because I see a lot of fear as Christians face things that ought not scare us. You see, we are exiles to the exiled. And what I mean by that is that we have spent this entire week. Actually, basically, I spent the entire week, not you, it was me trying to reconcile all of these ideas about why we are exiles and how the Israelites were exiles and how we can mesh these two things together because we are not necessarily sinners. 
uh, not sinners, we are sinners. We're not, so we haven't sinned in the same way that Israel has. It's different. And there's this paradoxical idea that exists here that was hard for me to really wrap my head around. So at 9 o'clock last night, I pulled back and went, none of this makes any sense, and I completely started over again because it was so insane. We are exiles to the exile. I want to read you from Ephesians to you from Ephesians 2, 15 through 22. And this is a lot, and I apologize. But it's good. It's the Bible, so enjoy it. But now in Jesus Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace for you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For, for, those, or for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of, of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. Here's the problem that I was encountering. In Jeremiah 29, we read about the Israelites from Judah who were exiled to Babylon in punishment for their sins. And Peter calls the church exiles, alluding to the exiled Israelites. And we kind of take it as a, a given here that we are exiles. But it feels different. And I can mostly square all of that, but the problem that I had was that on a spiritual level, you aren't in exile because of your sin. It's different. And thank God for that. Israel sinned, and the exile that they were in was punitive. And it felt strange to me to take the orders that were given to the people who were in exile for punishment, and they were being punished by God, and apply them to us who are not being punished without feeling a little off. So I want to read to you from a professor about exile so that we can understand some stuff here. Her name is Professor Martine A. Halverson-Taylor. She says, In one sense, the Babylonian exile in the 6th century BCE ended when King Cyrus of Persia issued an edict in 538 BCE, allowing the exiled Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their city and their temple. This was viewed as an affirmation of Jeremiah's prophecy that the exile would end after 70 years and was heralded by Isaiah's call that all exiles should return to the homeland. But in another sense, the developing notion of exile as an existential condition, a spiritual separation from Yahweh, meant that geographic return alone could not bridge the divide or end the exile. Indeed, a number of writers in the later Second Temple period, among them authors of the books of Daniel and Ezra, understood the exile to endure many centuries later and still anticipated a fuller restoration. Do you see what she's saying there? She is saying that the condition of exile became endemic. 
kind of as it always was. When the exiles returned to the land, it was never the same, and Israel continued to be dominated by foes until Jesus came on the scene. But what's more is there was a separation between God and man that had been there since the fall. And something had to come along to provide that fuller restoration. That fuller restoration coming through Jesus. So what does exile look like through the, from the position of God right now for us? In Ephesians 2 verse 19 it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. So you, Christian, are no longer exiles like Israel was. The condition of being exiled has been healed in that sense. You see, before you were saved, being exiled was normal. It was completely normal to be in exile because it meant that you were separated from God by your sin. Now, if we continue to broaden this out, we have to understand that sinful man's starting position is always separated and exiled from God. We were, as Ephesians puts it, strangers and aliens, and we're no longer there, which is great. We're called to those who were exiled from God, though. We are called to the stranger and the alien so that we can show them the love of Jesus. Verse 22 says, In him you also are being built together in a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. And that is the church. The question that I will ask all of Christianity is, do you know who you are? And the reason I ask this is because I think if we knew who we really were, we would have a very different perspective on many of the things that are happening around us in the world today. And we probably wouldn't freak out as much. I see a lot of paranoid people afraid of how terrible everything is. And honestly, this is nothing compared to what Christians before us endured. It's nothing. It's nothing compared to what Christ endured. Christ has called us to a life of suffering, which I'm going to get into more toward the end. But first, I want to talk about Jesus specifically. If you want to understand what being an exile to the exiled looks like, we need to look no further than Jesus. Jesus, who is God, came to earth. And throughout the Bible, you see this continued pattern of sinful people being exiled out. You have that in the garden with Adam and Eve. They sinned and they were exiled from the garden. Sin followed by exile. But Jesus, in coming to earth and walking among dirty, sinful, horrible people, reversed that completely. Jesus humbled himself and became a man, and he himself was exiled. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And when I think about this, it pulls me into this thought about the crucifixion that I often see and hear people say. People will say, well, Jesus died for my sins, and it's very cavalier. It's very easy to say. I'm just like, yeah, he did, but there's a lot more to it. I think, for instance, the movie The Passion, we, a lot of us saw that, maybe you didn't, I don't know. It's really bloody. 
and really gory and really violent. But I think in some way it kind of cheapens the cross because it lessens it to blood and guts. There were a lot of people that were hung on crosses in that day and age. But there was only one who ever bore the sins of mankind, who ever bore the wrath of God. And only one of them became sin on our behalf. You see, Jesus entered into exile so that we could leave exile and be united with God, thereby ending the endemic condition of mankind's exile so that we could turn to God and it would give us a new position and a new kind of relationship with God. See, it was for our sake that he made him sin. Sure, the violence of the cross, it's true. It was violent and bloody and bad. But that is the tip of the iceberg when it comes to what was really happening when Jesus died on the cross for us. He dies and he takes all the wrath and all the punishment that we deserved. And it's something that no amount of punishment that the Israelites could receive could accomplish. It's something that no amount of animal sacrifice could accomplish. You see, God broke shalom with himself so that we could have it. And he exiled himself into dirty earth so that we could have it. So that leads me to how we can live our lives as exiles to the exile. In Jeremiah, God gives the exiles in Babylon three instructional pieces. He says, live in the city by building houses, planting gardens, and starting families. They were going to be there for 70 years, so it's a long time. He says to seek the welfare of the city, because if they sought the welfare of the city, they too would benefit. And he also says, do not believe the false prophets that are in your midst. See, these instructions can apply to us in the sense that we are in exile, even though the nature of our exile is fundamentally different from the nature of the exile of the Israelites. Matthew H. Patton, in writing about the nature of exile, says, In Israel's time, exile was a metaphor for alienation from God, but now exile has a new meaning. For the church, exile refers to an our ongoing sufferings with Christ, with Christ in the old creation as we await Christ's return. We are in exile insofar as we do not yet enjoy the fullness of all the restoration glories that Christ presently enjoys in heaven. So the question for us as Christians is, and I would say as people who have a different relationship status to God than the Israelites did, how can we be exiles to, to those who are exiled? Or how can we live lives as exiles in a world that will otherwise not always appreciate the message of the gospel? These are the verses that Peter gives right before uh, he calls Christians exiles. First uh, Peter 2, 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own, for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into mar- his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So as children of God, you have a new identity, one that you 
didn't share when you were apart from God, one that you didn't have when you were exiled from God. And with that new identity comes a new role in this world. We become exiles of the world, acknowledging that we are people of God's own possession and given new identities through Christ's work on the cross and the resurrection. In Romans, it says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. So indeed, we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. The reality of the situation is that as a Christian, suffering will be inevitable and it will be normal. Peter continues and says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. For Peter, it's not a matter of if you will suffer. It's a matter of when. And that's not only at the hands of enemies of Christianity. It's suffering under the harsh reality that we still live in that old world. It's also the reality that we live in a time when the enemy is against us. There will always be people that will speak against you. There will always be evildoers who do that as long as we are in this old world. And that's what exile for us looks like. Um, in the side project of mine, I am working, I'm not doing a lot of the work, I'm mostly doing a lot of the tech stuff and podcast stuff, but I'm working with an organization that is helping to lead people out of Christian nationalism. And I'm working on booking guests and editing podcasts and stuff like that, doing public relations stuff. But lately, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts and trying to understand some of what people who follow that believe. So last week, I sat in on a Twitter listening session. I don't know if you know about these. They're kind of like radio shows that people put on, but they're on Twitter, and you can like sit in there and listen to people talk. And the guy was making his case for Christian nationalism. I guess for him, society had gone too far, and there were a lot of things that felt like they can no longer partake in. They want to create governments or a government that can govern from a strictly Christian perspective. They were talking about Sabbath laws. They were talking about other laws that would come from Christian teaching and doctrine. And there are obvious problems with this, I will admit. And I was giving a very charitable explanation of what I really think it is to be, you know, nice, I guess. One of the obvious problems is that in the history of Christianity, a lot of the Christians that were fleeing to other places were fleeing from other Christians, unfortunately. Much to the chagrin of me, who would prefer it wasn't that way. Nevertheless, they want to run from those who are separated from God and escape because it's too painful. That's what it feels like. Which I feel like is what, kind of the opposite of what we're called to do. Like, 
let's go set up this thing over here so we can have it easier. So we don't have to deal with people that we don't like or people that may disagree with us. You see, Jesus ran directly toward those who were his enemies, and he lived among them despite who he was. In fact, he did that for you and for me, and then he saved us, which is great. It's interesting, if you were to ask a lot of the pastors and ministers about their experiences um, over the past, I don't know, three years, from 2020 to now, or late 2019 to now, um, I think a lot of pastors and people in leadership would have said, yeah, everyone's getting it, we're doing good. I think if you were to ask them now what they think about that statement, people are probably not getting it. I don't think that I'm necessarily indicting mission church per se, but I am in a way saying that about Christianity as a whole because I think we're losing the thread a little bit. You see, when the rubber hit the road and all of it really mattered, people really wanted to put their rights before they were willing to sacrifice for others on a lot of issues, on both sides of the aisle. And it was sad. And I think it's funny, not ha funny, but interesting, that right when things start heating up, people want to leave. A lot of the people that claim to be the fighters on everything are the ones that want to remove themselves from the battlefield right when it's getting started. So my encouragement to all of us is to stay in that battle. You see, we are exiles in the sense that we are not necessarily welcomed everywhere. And that's how it should be. That's how it's going to be. We know it's going to be that way. And this is where we can really dig into the identity that we now have as exiles. You see, all of God's instructions to the Israelites are applicable because we're called to live where God has us here in Tucson. That was the same thing that he was saying to them. He was saying, you have to go here and you have to live here, but if you're going to do it, you might as well do it this way. And so we can use those instructions in that way. The nature of our exile, I believe, is different. But we can certainly use those instructions. Build houses, marry people, have children, pray for the city that you're a part of, and run from the ideas that would have you believe there is an easy way out because there isn't. Not unless you want to abandon the work that God has placed you on this earth, in this place, in this building, in this city and state to do. We have to live life in the place that God has us. You see, a lot of us are asking questions about where we should be and what we should be doing, and that matters. But at the same time, what, what we should really think about is this bigger idea that God has us in a place for a reason. Where you should be is exactly where you are because that's where God has you. And that's it. It's very simple. You see, there's a lot of freedom in that because when you realize that where you should be is where you are because that's where God has you, you don't have to really think about all the things that you need to control 
and the things that you want to control. It frees you up to allow that to be controlled by God. You know how many hours I have spent and how much money I've spent with therapy for them just to tell me, you have no control over that. (laughs) Great, thanks. Why do I pay you? Just kidding. I know why I pay you. Thank you. It's, <laughs> it's, it's helpful. Um, here's the reality of the world that we live in. People are longing for someone to be in charge of this thing. I hear it in music. I hear it in TV. I hear it in song. Um, in, well, no, not really poems anymore, but I hear it all over. People want someone to be in charge. They're freaked out by the way things are. People are longing for friends. People are longing for just other people because we stare at these screens all day long and think that it's the substitute for what we really were created for. We have so much in the way of opportunity to be a part of people's lives as exiles in Tucson. But we're never going to see any of that opportunity if we run away from what God has called us to. Should we seek the welfare of our city? Yes, we should do that. But there, you run the risk of doing something wrong there too because if you clean up all the neighborhood streets and you help out with the homeless and you paint buildings and make schools better and do all of this stuff, yet you don't actually share the gospel, it's pointless. It's just pointless. There are a thousand different nonprofits in Tucson that do all of that work and don't share the gospel. We need to do things because God loves us. You see, just like the cross was kind of the the violence on the cross was the tip of the iceberg of what was really happening when God was putting all of sin on one man, The reality of us painting a fence or cleaning a street or pulling a weed or something like that really is a much bigger picture of what we believe about redemption and what we believe about what God is doing in the hearts of people. We can use that to show people, hey, this is how we believe Redemption can just be seen, but it's so much more underneath it that we need to unpack. And we can't unpack any of that if we don't invite people to it. So our service has to be to God, and it has to be to others, and it has to be calling people to um, live in this new way. People right now in Tucson are lost and they are exiled from God and they don't know what's going on. And they're looking for friends and they're looking for someone to to be in control of the whole thing because it feels like it's out of control. At least it feels like that to me sometimes. I don't know about you. They're searching for that. They're also searching for someone that can help them with a lot of the problems in their lives and that's Jesus. And we have the great opportunity to be that for them. So that's why we take communion. Because we want to celebrate Jesus. And we want to um, remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. But we also want to understand that he loved us so much 
that he broke his body for us, that he sacrificed himself for us, and that he gave himself for us so that we could be new creatures, so that we could live in exile unto him in a way that other people haven't in all of history. And that's why we get to do this. And so if you'd pray with me, we'll do that, and then uh, we'll continue with the night. We're going to do worship, and we're going to do communion, and we're going to hang out afterwards. So, yeah. Heavenly Father, God, I just lift everyone up here to you, God. And I ask that you would allow us to understand what it means to really be new creations in you, to have new life in you. And I ask that you would call us to help the people in this city who are hurting, but I would also ask that you would call us um, even harder to share your gospel with people so that they can know how much you love them and how much you care for them, God. Um, it is such a pleasure that I get to serve at this church and love on these people. Um, Father, continue to work through all of us and give us um, hope throughout this week. Um, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. With uh, communion, if, if you haven't really thought about Jesus as your Savior, we ask that you would just think about that. Go talk to one of us, and we'll talk to you about that. But if you even believe a little bit that God saved you and knows you and that you were um, reconciled to him, you should come up and take it. Um, thanks a lot.